I always enjoy having a return guest because that means we connected, are on the same page and have more to talk about. And so it is with today's guest. She is Rachel Weisberg. Rachel is a patient and family engagement advisor and organizational system consultant based in the San Francisco Bay Area. Her work focuses on changing healthcare systems so that they are truly patient-centered as well as healthy and a joyful place for all healthcare workers. Previously, she worked at the National Quality Forum in Washington, D.C., where she managed several partnership for patient initiatives, including the Patient and Family Engagement Action Team. In addition, she supported the Measure Application Partnership Performance Measurement Recommendations to the Department of Health and Human Services. Previously to NQF, Rachel worked at the Endocrine Society and the LeapFrog Group, where she ran programs focused on patient education, patient safety, and affordable care. She holds a master's degree in organizational management from the George Washington University. Rachel is a strong advocate for the patient voice in healthcare since she personally manages three health conditions. She writes about her experience as a patient in her blog titled sleeplikeababytonight.com. While in DC, she served as a patient advisor on Sibley Memorial Hospital's Patient and Family Advisory Council and Georgetown University Hospital's Patient and Family Advisory Council for Quality and Safety. She also worked as a peer counselor for HIV patients at the Whitman Walker Clinic. And Rachel is going to be a contributor to our charity Patient Safety Anthology coming out late spring, early summer, titled Highway to Heart, Humor, and Honesty in Healthcare. So this is with heartfelt happiness to welcome you back to the show, Rachel. Thanks, Pat. Great to be here. It is great to have you here. So, Rachel, you worked at the National Quality Forum in Washington, D.C., where you say that you manage several Partnership for Patients initiatives, including the Patient and Family Engagement Action Team. So as it pertains to heart humor or honesty in healthcare, what outcomes from these projects have you seen in action now that you are out in the field? Great question. I'm currently a patient family engagement advisor, and that was sort of the trajectory of my career really took off from the patient family engagement action team that I got to manage when I was at NQF. PFE, as we call it in our circle, patient family engagement is is really a new, new-ish emphasis within inside the field of quality and safety. And being a patient myself, it's a new and just a really exciting and an important area. And the reason for that is because there's just more and more of an understanding that if we don't engage patients and families, if we don't allow the, their voice to be heard really clearly in the healthcare system, um, not only you know, is the quality of healthcare affected, but patients don't get the care. Their, their whole experience is, is really not what they, what they want or need. So I think that, you know, NQF produced, you know, a number of products that helped sort of launch that, but, and CMS is definitely carrying that forward, but I think that it's continuing across the whole, the whole field of healthcare. It's kind of a slow road that trickles, and I think not only do providers need to know about this, but patients do too, so they can feel empowered to be a part of that team. And I find it very interesting that, that not only do you work in the field of patient-centered care, but you yourself are a patient at times. What is it like for you to sit on both sides of that seesaw? 
<laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting. Now that I'm doing patient family engagement, it's a little bit more seamless since I'm able to pull from my patient experience and within my work. But I, I usually make it clear sort of which hat I'm wearing. You know, for instance, when I make comments on phone calls, I'll often say, you know, I'm speaking as a patient or, you know, otherwise I'm just assumed that I'm doing something from my professional, out of my professional experience. But I would say that managing three health conditions makes me much a better PFE consultant because I have been so inside the system and I understand the problem at such a ground level that it helps me solve them. So in that sense, the the, the curse has been a blessing. (laughs) No, I get that. I would imagine that it would make you uh, a much better practitioner because you've been on the other side. It also has to be a bit frustrating for you, though, when you are wearing your patient hat to see folks who may not understand or follow patient family engagement thought processes. Yes. Yes, it is challenging. I mean, there are definitely times where it's very frustrating. And I mean, there's so much work to do. That's why I'm in this field now and why I'm committed to staying in it, because there's so much work to do. And of course, there are moments where I want to go outside and just scream. But I think that we all have that feeling, all of us who are working to change and make things better. I have my own personal experience, but lots of people have their own you know, we all have our own lens in which we see things. So you have to do what you can one day at a time. <laughs> now, I know that you personally are increasingly concerned with the blurring lines in healthcare of who gets to decide what happens to a patient and who gets to speak for a patient. Let's talk about that for a minute. Yes. So I've been more and more conscious of for a number of reasons. I I would say that it started with an experience that I had where, so I'm a migraine patient and um, I had had several experiences where I was in a hospital and I said a certain thing to someone and as a result, my, I had one specific experience where I was taken into the psych ward very unexpectedly. And for people who don't know what that means, it means you have no liberty. No one knows where you are. If you're there alone, you're completely stripped of your belongings and you're there at the whim of the head doctor. And it was because I was in tremendous amount of pain and they were afraid that I was, I was at risk of taking my own life, which I was not what I needed was medication which eventually I got, but that was in a large DC hospital. It really showed me how certain protocols that we have in place in hospitals and throughout our healthcare system can trigger an experience for a patient that where one person has complete control over another person. And I really question those those times. Another example that I'm increasingly concerned with is my mother's a professional caregiver of elderly people. And there's so many times where people are at the end of their life and they're not given complete information or families make decisions for their, their loved one and the lines get very blurry. I feel like a lot of people have these stories and I'm just hearing more and more about them. I'm, I've seen them a lot, both professionally and personally now. So I just think it's a conversation that 
that we should all be having, those of us who work in healthcare, about being careful to protect our individual right over our our own decisions. Wow. I'm feeling frightened as you're saying that because I can just imagine what that would have felt like for you. And as you talk about it, you had no liberty. Somebody else was in charge of what was going to happen to you. And if you were an elder person or a person with no one else to advocate for them or not full mind as you were, how could you get out of that system? I mean, that's where some people could just go down with the system. I think it's right to be scared. I was terrified when it happened to me. No one knew where I was. I'd gone in an ambulance to the ER. You know, they take away all of your belongings, so I wasn't allowed to make a phone call. My wallet was gone. My ID was gone. They don't give you back your things until until they release you when that happens. It's like you're in prison, Mm -hmm. but you're not. I have minority friends who've been in a situation where they've been threatened by the presence of a police officer and have told me, you know, how scary that is for them. And I got just a a little glimpse at what that felt like. And I think that that was, in a sense, that was good for me because I I understand now that it, it is really important when we make decisions about these protocols that we put in place for the safety of patients and other people that we make those lines really bright in order to make sure that we don't cross them, that we don't make it too easy to cross them. I think that that's what I'm concerned about. I I think that right now we cross them very easily. I write in my blog, um, I give some very specific examples of times where they've been crossed far too easily and the consequences have not been good. Maybe one of the rules should be not to work in a vacuum. There should have been no time that you would have had to experience this all by yourself where they wouldn't say, we need to call somebody else in, somebody on your side, somebody to represent you. I mean, this stuff happens all the time, Pat. Like decisions are just taken away from the patient. That needs to stop. I think a lot of this happens at the system level, you know, Mm -hmm. within each organization is where the decisions are made. Where does it go wrong within each system and how to fix it? And there's no easy answer to that. But I do think it starts with an honest conversation, which I don't think that we're really having within healthcare yet Mm -hmm. about, I was reading a, a book the other day not actually pertaining to healthcare, someone was saying every institution in society that has authority over other people always needs to be questioned. In other words, it needs to constantly justify itself. I feel like healthcare within America really needs to do that right now. It needs to really examine itself and say, okay, if, if this is a system that has authority over other people, it needs to justify itself. And I think that patient advocates need to be at the forefront of that, Mm -hmm. where we say every time that you are close to taking liberty away from someone, those lines need to be a lot brighter. I think the people that work within the systems would love to question the systems. I can't imagine that the people 
who were administering whatever to you or who were working with you and doctors and nurses, people with a heart and family, and they've got to have a soul. Here they are working in a system perhaps that they don't really agree with either, but then they can't say anything because then they lose their job and they lose their benefits. And so everybody just shuts up and runs around within the system. Absolutely. It's all about changing the culture and it's, and it's about making it safe to for speak everybody. up, exactly, safe exactly. For the workers, safe for the patients. Yep. In that sense, nothing has changed since when the safety movement started, mm-hmm. which is just how do we change the culture? How do we allow this to be a safe place? Plus, <laughs> when you're running a business, and let's face it, that's what this is. This is a business. The people at the top control everything because it is a business. It needs to run like a business. And all, yeah. all the other little minions have to follow suit. So as long as it's run like a business and not from, from the heart, as long as money's the bottom line, I don't see it changing. Our, yeah, our healthcare system is profit-driven. So we, we have to make change knowing that that's what we're working within, and it's hard. One of the things that I've done a lot of talking about with other people within the healthcare field is what exactly do we mean when we talk about vulnerable populations? And of course, a lot of that term can mean a lot of things, you know, people with different kinds of disabilities, you know, minority populations. But what I would include in that is exactly your point. People who just come into the healthcare system without another person with them, people who are alone, because then they don't have an advocate and they have no one to witness what's happening to them. And I do think that that puts them at a particularly vulnerable position. And this takes me to my next thought. We talk about vulnerable populations. Healthcare is, too, is economically stratified. And as you say, to put it bluntly, if you have money, you have excellent outcomes. And if you don't, you don't. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's another side to that as well. Yes. When I became an independent consultant and became self-employed, and then I moved from D.C. to California and was sort of navigating all of the ups and downs of, you know, finding my own work and getting contracts, I didn't have the whole safety net of having insurance provided to me by an employer. And I write about this in my blog, which was, you know, I was getting health care through Covered California and I experienced things that I had never experienced before because of with three health conditions, that was very challenging. And I really began to see a lot of things. I began to experience things on a personal level that I had only written about on a policy level before about, you know, quote, social determinants of health. And when I didn't have the money, you know, to go from point A to point B and when how, you know, because housing was so expensive, I was living in Oakland at the time. And these things that I had always just sort of taken for granted before suddenly were real challenges for me and therefore started to affect, for instance, could I take all of my medication and could I get to the pharmacy? And um, I started doing some research about how exactly are vulnerable populations affected by the fact that they don't make as much money as the middle and upper class. And I found some just really astonishing things, like one statistic that just was crazy to me is that the safety net population actually has less spent on them by insurers and government programs. It's $112 compared to $367. 
In other words, people who have money get more money spent on them by government and insurance. There are so many things, ways in which things are a little bit upside down in our system and we re- reward people who are already doing well and then we punish people who actually need the resources. The last few years, I feel like I've learned a lot and hopefully will be a better advocate for it. Oh, absolutely. And when I said before that you were on both sides of the seesaw, well, you, you surely are. You're seeing from an economical side, you know, from a healthcare side, from an insurance side, very interesting place for you to be. However, I think it's really teaching you and in helping you to help others just to improve this whole arena, this whole healthcare arena that we're all trying to uh, thrive in. What do you think we can do on both ends? Because this is a situation where it's not just a provider problem, it's a patient problem. We need to work together to approach each other in every healthcare encounter as teammates with heart, because whether we're talking about humor, honesty, trust, liberty, everything I think will fall into place if we simply treat each other from the heart. It seems simple. Any quick fixes or thoughts on that? I love that thought, Pat. I absolutely agree that, you know, it always comes down to human connection and trust and relationships. One silver lining that I've experienced. I was diagnosed with HIV in 2012. And I write about this, about how the irony of being an HIV patient is that HIV patients get the best care. Everyone is terrified for them when they get the diagnosis. But the reality is that HIV providers, and when I say providers, I mean everyone involved in their care, have it figured out better than any other sickness out there. And I think the reason for that is because they care. People who are in that field, their whole heart is involved in what they do. And they take the whole person into account, every aspect of their life. And I think that they're a a real model to learn from. This is fascinating. We need more than a short amount of time to tackle all of these. That was something I never knew, but I do think it bears more inquiry. Yes, I'd love to talk about it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. There's so much that uh, you can talk about with us today, but we're going to begin to wrap up. Is there anything we missed that you wanted to bring up before we head out? Just thank you for the opportunity to raise these important issues. Can't wait to read the book. I so appreciate you being in the book. I want to um, help our listeners right now to know where they can find out more about you, how they can contact you, where they can read your blog. So give us any contact information you'd like to share. Sure. My email is rwpatientcare at gmail.com. And my blog is sleeplikeababytonight.com. Alrighty, we're talking with Rachel Weisberg. The website is sleeplikeababytonight.com. Well, my friend, any final words you'd like to leave us with? Let's just keep up the good fight. (laughs) (laughs) You keep up the good fight. We need people like you on both sides of the seesaw. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks so much, Pat. It's such a pleasure to talk with you today. Listen to Pat Rulo and Speak Up and Stay Alive Radio. Stay safe from little-known healthcare and hospital hazards. To learn more, go to speakupandstayalive.com. That's speakupandstayalive.com.